Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 8. It's going to be our text for this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 242. So today we're going to be resuming our study on the life of David. Uh, So if you recall, uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the covenant that God makes with David, also seeing David's prayer of thanksgiving, as it says, he he literally sits in front of the ark, sitting in awe, uh, just reveling uh, over the goodness of God as he recounts who God is to, to David. And in that sermon that Pastor Matt preached, uh, he emphasized the fact that God has built an eternal house through his son, King Jesus, looking at how this covenant paves the way for the Messiah to come. And so in other words, what is the highlight of 2 Samuel 7 is God's promise about his coming kingdom that will be fully revealed in Christ. And this past week, I actually uh, had to write a research paper for one of my classes on the kingdom of God as it is revealed in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. And so this, in many ways, was a very fitting sermon for me to be preaching on today. Uh, The kingdom of God is incredibly important to understanding the whole narrative of Scripture. Uh, In fact, Gordon Fee boldly claims that you cannot know anything about Jesus if you miss the kingdom of God. You cannot have Jesus without the kingdom. And so whereas in chapter 7 we see the promise of the coming kingdom, in chapter 8 we begin to see a picture of David's kingdom that in many ways anticipates God's coming kingdom. And it can be tempting for us as we're looking at this narrative to kind of gloss over these sections uh, because we're blessed to live in the wake of the crucifixion, the resurrection, uh, the ascension and enthronement of Christ who has brought and, and who will bring his kingly rule. However, I think we would do well to pay attention to the teachings of older revelations because there is a very clear connection between the teachings in 2 Samuel 7 and 8 and later kingdom doctrine. All of the essentials are the same. And in 2 Samuel 8, we see that God's kingdom did come on earth under David's kingship, meaning that the promises made in chapter 7 did receive a real, though not ultimate, fulfillment even in David's own life. And in this, 2 Samuel really serves as a sort of historical record of how the Lord established his kingdom under David. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and look at this account in its entirety. 2 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagamah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. 
And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Batah and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all of the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab the son of Zeruiah was over the army, and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahalud was recorder. And Zadok the son of Ahitub and Ahimelech the son of Abiathar were priests, and Saraiah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you open our ears and our hearts to you this morning. Father, speak to us through your word and help us to know you more as we consider the truth of your word this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. So this chapter is very easily broken up into three sections, with each section separated by the phrase, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And this first section that we see is David's victories in verses 1 through 6. So the chapter begins with the two words after this. Now these words should not be taken as strictly chronological, After all, this chapter includes events that took place before David even became king with the defeat of the Amalekites that's mentioned in verse 12. There's also events that come later in his reign, such as the defeat of the Ammonites that's mentioned in that same verse in verse 12. And so the words after this seem to mark a thematic connection with chapter 7 rather than simply a chronological connection. Chapter 8 outlines what happened as a consequence of the promise made to David in chapter 7. And one particularly important point is the promise made in chapter 7, verse 10, where God says to David, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more. And so the place was the land that God had promised to Abraham, which extended from the river Nile in the south to the Euphrates in the north, from the great sea in the west to the desert of the Jordan Valley in the east. And so what is it that we see throughout the course of the chapter? The kingdom of David extending to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And throughout these areas, the text tells us that these enemies were subdued so that they were no longer a threat to Israel. Under David, we see God's great promises reach a new level of fulfillment, which really serves as the theme of this chapter. And the problem with establishing God's kingdom is that God's kingdom has enemies. And in the case of David, there were enemies in literally every direction. 
However, as we touched on earlier, the Lord is with David, and he gives David victory over all of his enemies. None of them stand a chance against David and against Israel. And what's really being shown is that none of them stood a chance against Israel's God. They were all soundly defeated. And the narrator takes the time to explain the victory and then describe the results that soon follow. And I think it would be wise for us to pause and recognize that each of these victories was an extraordinary act on the goodness of God. The enemies of God's kings of God's king were enemies of God's purposes, and so their defeat was necessary if God's kingdom was to be established. And so this first enemy that we encounter are the Philistines. So at that time, the Philistines occupied much of the coastal plain to the west of Israel. And we've dealt with the Philistines in many instances throughout the life of David, so I'm not going to give you the whole story on who the Philistines are, but they are a very prominent enemy throughout the time of David. If you remember, twice David had actually tried to escape and move into Philistine territory, trying to deceive them in different ways, which if you want to read about that, you can find that in 1 Samuel 21 as well as 1 Samuel chapter 27. And in the Philistines' final battle against King Saul at the end of 1 Samuel, the Philistines are actually victorious, killing Saul and his sons, and they move in to occupy much of Israel. And it's actually the threat of the Philistines and the promise of deliverance from them that is one of the ways that really kind of propels David forward to the throne. And here we read in verse 1 that David defeated the Philistines and he subdued them. This is recorded as the first action in the official summary of David's kingdom. This is also the first thing he did when he became king back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, meaning that the victory spoken here either is just a retelling of, of what happened or it indicates a reclaiming of the territory and, and more of a complete control over the Philistines. And in this, David did what Saul had been appointed to do but failed. And Bill Arnold comments that Saul's failure as king may be defined in human historical terms as his failure to drive out the Philistines from Israelite territory. His death and mutilation at the hands of the Philistines was a stunning indictment on his impotency as king. Defeating Israel's enemies is what God's king did, and it is what Saul failed to do. But now, under David, the seemingly greatest adversary of God's people besides maybe the devil himself was at last overcome. And right now we're doing a study through the book of Judges in youth group. And this idea of enemies being subdued by a leader that has been raised up by God is a very common theme. Uh, Throughout the book of Judges, this is the common practice that God uses to deliver his people. And it's also important to note that in Judges, as well as here with the Philistines and other enemies, the people are subdued by their enemies because they have failed to listen to the Lord and drive out their enemies. And because of this, because they're allowing their enemies to live among them, they invited trouble in. And we see a similar scenario in the time of David. Because Saul had not driven out the Philistines or the Amalekites and others, they continue to be a thorn in Israel's side. This is why David needed to go in and, and subdue the enemy 
or else the problems would have persisted. And so this is what he does. And as a consequence of David's decisive victory over the Philistines, we read that David took Methagamah out of the hand of the Philistines. And there's some debate on what Methagamah really is, and there actually isn't really a clear answer. Uh, one commentator thinks that it's a figurative expression, meaning the bridal of the mother's city, but that's not clear. And this entire narrative is actually recorded elsewhere in Scripture in First Chronicles chapter 18. And the author there notes that David took Gath and its villages from the hand of the Philistines. So if we were to kind of pair them together, that would mean that Gath would be seen as the mother city. However, without you know, getting caught up in the weeds of Methagamah and what that means, I think we need to just pause for a second and realize the work that God has done in David's life. You know, it wasn't that long ago that David was pretending to be a madman at Gath, you know, quite literally feigning insanity for fear of his life. And then a few chapters later in 1 Samuel 27, David goes and actually lives in Gath for a season to get away from King Saul. And now we fast forward to this account and David is now ruling over Gath, not as a Philistine nation, but as a territory owned by Israel. I mean, talk about a transformation that has taken place. Now, this is what the, the cool kids would call a glow up, you know, a, a rags to riches kind of story. And this transformation is certainly not just a result of David's faithfulness, but of God's faithfulness to his faithful but flawed servant. And we see in this that we serve a faithful God who keeps his promises to his people. Let that truth comfort you this morning. And now as we move to verse 2, we encounter the next enemy, the Moabites. And if we're honest with ourselves as we look at this verse, I think most of us would agree that this verse strikes us as, at the very least, strange. And we read that after David defeated Moab, he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. So the question immediately becomes, why did David do this? This is even more surprising when you consider that David's great-grandmother was Ruth, who was a Moabite woman. David's Ancestry.com report would show that David has Moabite in his blood. And so why does David do what he does? And once again, commentators are torn and there's not really a definitive answer. One argue, argument that I saw in multiple places was that David was so severe with them because they had broken their trust with him back in 1 Samuel 22 when David asked the king of Moab to let his parents stay with them. And Jewish tradition holds that David's parents were later killed by the Moabites. This may have been true. However, we just don't know. You know. Well, in Scripture, his parents are never mentioned again. Scripture does not tell us what took place. And this one is kind of tough for me because that would, that would mean, if that's true, that, that David was so harsh with them because he was simply motivated by a personal vendetta against the Moabites, which isn't completely out of the realm of possibility. You know, we know David was a man driven by his passions, for better or for worse. So that, that could be a possibility. 
But as I was studying, the explanation that kind of made the most sense to me and where I, I really landed is that this practice was done for the main reason, meaning that there, there may or may not have been other motives, but for the main reason as a way to greatly weaken the Moabites. Now, the Moabites at this time are still a formidable foe, and so cutting them down by two-thirds it would have essentially make them no longer a threat. However, whatever the reasoning may have been, it's no secret that this was a very severe treatment on the part of David. And when we read these violent accounts in Scripture, I think we need to be careful in our response. You know, our task as Bible readers, as humble Bible readers, is to learn from the text of Scripture, not to make our own independent moral judgments based on what we feel or based on what we find there. I think we need to be very careful in this regard. You know, it's okay to not have a clear-cut answer as to why something is recorded in Scripture. You can say, okay, you can say I, I don't know, and, and you can go and, and study more. That's perfectly fine, perfectly acceptable. But, but what is not okay is explaining away certain texts or pretending that they aren't there, that they don't exist. There are hard passages in Scripture And it isn't our job to try and up God's PR by explaining them away. Now, at the same time, if you're sharing the gospel with someone who's never heard of of God or Jesus or any of these things, I wouldn't recommend going to 2 Kings 2 with the story of Elisha and the she-bears. But you can... You, you, we should not be dismissing these texts of Scripture or pretending that they don't exist. You know, verse I remind myself of often is Second Timothy three sixteen that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for correction, for training, for reproof, for training in righteousness. All Scripture is profitable for us, not only the ones that just make us feel good, but the ones that are uncomfortable to read. And we do a huge disservice to God when we skip over hard passages. We think that we are actually doing God a favor, but just the opposite is true. This is one of the main reasons why I think expository preaching is so essential. The practice of systematically working through books of the Bible, going chapter by chapter. Because it allows you to see God revealed in so many ways. So many different ways with different passages emphasizing different attributes of the same Lord. In 2 Samuel 6, we clear, while we clearly see God's love and his mercy, we see a major emphasis on God's holiness. In chapter 7, we see a major emphasis on his faithfulness as he shows his faithfulness to his servant David. And now in chapter 8, there's a big emphasis in the initial stages of the chapter on God's justice. And as we come back to this verse, we see that in the context of this generally positive presentation of David's reign, that these actions do seem to be approved. And I think John Calvin does a great job capturing the tone of the text, saying, The stringency which David exercised against the Moabites ought not to be considered cruelty, but to be the just judgment of God, since they had abused his long patience and had mocked him. So rather than being tempted to climb up on our own moral high horse and condemning David's actions, it's important to recognize that the righteousness and the justice of God's kingdom includes his judgment on all rebellion against him. 
In his gracious mercy, this judgment may be held back for a season in order to give opportunity for repentance, as Romans 2.4 tells us. But as was the case with the Moabites, the day will come when God will judge the world in righteousness. Let us not abuse the patience of God by failing to heed the warnings of the gospel concerning the judgment of God. We do so at our own peril. What happened to the Moabites should serve as a warning for us. So now we've spent a lot of time talking about our first two enemies. However, we're not going to spend nearly as much time on on these next couple accounts, so you can rest easy. So the next enemy we see are actually the Syrians. And of the Syrians, there are two distinct kingdoms mentioned, the Syrians of Damascus and the Syrians of Zobah. And both of these kingdoms are referenced in Psalm chapter 60, which uh, Brother Dave read earlier in the service. And this psalm is in reference to many of the victories that are seen here in chapter 8. David begins his battle against the Syrians with the Syrians of Zobah. And this conflict that arose with the Syrians is most likely the same battle with Syria that will be covered in more detail in chapter 10. But for now, as we look at the mention of it in chapter 8, we see that the battle happened as a result of David wanting to restore his power at the river. And as he goes to do this, the king of Zobah sought to oppose David with force. However, as has been the theme of the chapter, Zobah and his troops never stood a shot, and they're routed by David's army. And not only are they routed, but then David takes from him his chariots and his horsemen. The next thing it mentions is that David then hamstrung the chariot horses except for 100 chariots. So in other words, David made all but 100 chariots completely unserviceable, completely unusable. And I think this is because David recognized the command in Deuteronomy 17:16 regarding kings where God commands kings not to multiply horses for himself. I think this also shows that David's confidence is not in his army, but in his living God. And in fact, he says this plainly in Psalm 20, verse 7, where he says that some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And after this, it says that the reinforcements show up, uh, specifically noting the Syrians of Damascus. However, they too meet the same fate with 22,000 Syrians perishing, making it quite easy for David to make himself master of the country and set up protection. And Matthew Henry comments, the enemies of God's church that think to secure themselves will prove in the end to ruin themselves by their confederacies with each other. We see that God's kingdom will be established. And at the end of all of this, we read the beautiful sentence, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. In all of these wars, David was protected. The Lord preserved him. And it seems that David oftentimes puts himself in jeopardy. However, God covers his servant in the days of battle, which David often speaks about in the Psalms to the glory of God. And not only was David just protected, which led to his victories, we see in the the second section that David was also enriched. So this takes us to our second point, which I simply titled, David's Spoils. So verses 7 and 8 tell us what these spoils were from the battles. 
And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Batah and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. And what's highlighted in this section and what's important is not necessarily what David's spoils were, but rather what he did with them. And that is what is key. He was enriched, but he did not keep it to himself. David's response to the Lord's victory becomes the focus in the narrative in that David consistently dedicated the captured goods to the Lord. Once again, in direct contrast to Saul, we learn who is suitable to be Israel's king. When God blesses, the true anointed one gives thanks and obeys. As Del Davis says, the wealth of the nations belonged to its rightful owner. And David recognized this. Verse 9 then introduces us to a man named Toy, who is the king of Hamath. And as a result of David's victory over Zobah, David's prestige and his fame grew to such an extent that the king of Hamath, which is a region not exactly close to Israel, took precaution and sent his son Joram to make a peace offering with David and congratulate him on his victory. And when Joram comes, he too brings silver, brings gold, and bronze. And without skipping a beat, what does David do? These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all of the nations that he subdued. Again, David's focus was not on bringing glory to himself, but on bringing glory to the Lord. And his actions showed it. David consistently dedicated all of his spoils to God, and the Lord blessed him for it. Once again, we read at the end of verse 14, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. This is the second time that we've seen this statement in this chapter. So why does the, why does the narrator, the narrative mention this twice? I think Heath Thomas puts it well when he says that the reason is simple, but it's profound. We are supposed to understand that the Lord is the only reason David is where he is and is doing what he is doing. In short, the text highlights the true hero of the story, Yahweh the king. In this, we see the divine king granting his human king victory. Or in short, God blesses David. And what is the reason that God blesses David? It's really the same answer to the question, why does God bless his children? Now, sometimes we act as though God blesses us so that we can just sit back and relax, so that we can pat ourselves on the back as we sit by a pool and think to ourselves, you know, wow, I am so blessed, you know, humble and blessed, humble and blessed. But this is the wrong perspective on divine blessing. The biblical view of divine blessing is this, blessed by God to be a blessing to others. This is John Piper's entire plea in his best-selling book, Don't Waste Your Life, pleading believers to live gladly to make others glad in God. And this is the perspective that we should have as believers, knowing that we have been blessed, as Ephesians 1 reminds us, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so our response is to then be a blessing to others. And one of the biggest ways that we are a blessing to others is in the context of the local church. We should absolutely seek to bless others who are not believers through sharing the gospel for sure. Of course, that is a command in scripture that we are to do that. We are to go and share the hope that is within us. 
But this message isn't necessarily about charity work, though that, of course, again, is not a bad thing. When we talk about blessing others, our main focus should be blessing our brothers and sisters. David was a blessing to the Israelites first, and we need to do the same. Again, there's, of course, nothing wrong with wanting to serve the community. Scripture tells us to do this, so please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But if you are serving outsiders to the neglect of your brothers and sisters, that's a problem. You know, in 1 Samuel 30, when David defeats the Amalekites, he doesn't go back and give the spoils to the Amalekites or the other surrounding areas. Who does he give it to? His fellow men, the Israelites. You know, John 13, 35 says, They will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, that is referring to believers. And Jesus is saying that is how the world will recognize you. That is how you will be attractive to a dying world, through the care you show to the household of faith first and foremost. They will see that you're my disciples when there's a need in the church and it's met like that. They will see that you're my disciples through the love that you show to one another. When brothers and sisters are able to dwell in unity who have nothing in common except for the God that has brought them together, that is when they will see and recognize that you belong to Christ. That is what it means to be a blessing to others first and foremost, is to not neglect our brothers and sisters. And David understood this. God's blessing is meant to flow to us, and it is meant to flow through us. The Lord gives David victory, and he blesses him. And what does David do with that gift? Blesses others. And we read in verse 15, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all of his people. God granted victory and success so that David could rule God's kingdom in justice and equity for all of his people. God blessed David so that the blessings would flow to him and would flow through him. And this is true for us as well. God's victory and blessing to David is a picture of what God would do through Jesus. God put all of his enemies, including sin, death, and hell, under the feet of Jesus. And God gave victory to Jesus wherever he went. And he did this so that we might be forgiven and brought into God's kingdom. And those who are believers in Christ, blessed in the forgiveness that only Christ offers, we are meant to share that message with others. We are meant to be a blessing to others by sharing the hope that is in us. And our main truth, which I want you to get from this passage is this, it should seem pretty clear at this point, but believers are blessed by God to be a blessing to others. Believers are blessed by God to be a blessing to others. This was true in the life of David, and it ought to be true of believers today. As we transition into our final section, we see David's officials in verses 15 through 18. With this list of royal officials, we see that David has clearly selected the team that is going to serve. And as we've already looked at, the narrator gives us the summary sentence of what David's new monarchy looked like, doing what was just and doing what was right for all of his people. And in this statement, we see that David ruled carefully with his care extending to all areas, ruling over all of Israel. 
the people were safe under David's protection. He also did justice with sh- without showing any partiality. He never perverted justice through favor or affection. What lessons our nation could learn from David. His justice system wasn't swayed by emotions. His courtrooms weren't altered by angry protesters. David judged fairly to all of his people. And herein, David serves as a type of Christ who was faithful and true and who in righteousness judged. And this is what the narrator wants us to see. David is the embodiment of the Lord's rule on earth. He is the Lord's chosen, anointed one who rules as God himself wants his people to be governed. David becomes the example for all future kings. But as we continue through the story of David through 2 Samuel, we will see that there is more to the story. We will see that David, even David, fails the ultimate test and he is not able to fully deliver his people. That there would be a greater David that would come. And at the end of the chapter, we could very easily insert that phrase once more. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. God's blessings follow David. The Lord was with David. This is abundantly clear. And this isn't some form of success theology, you know, saying that David is going to enjoy easy times and that everything he touches is going to magically turn to gold. All you have to do is read the story of David and you'll see very clearly that's not the case. But what is being emphasized is that David is promised God's abiding presence with him wherever he goes and the assurance that God is sufficient for all of David's needs. And that truth, brothers and sisters, is far greater than any success theology. We don't need success. We need Christ. One of my favorite verses that I quote often to the at youth group and, and everywhere is Psalm 1611, that you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are treasures forevermore. In your presence is fullness of joy. And so when we have God's abiding presence, that is more than enough. And so the question becomes, what would it mean for believers today to have victory? wherever we go. This chapter illustrates that God is faithful to his word. You know, what he has said will come to pass. It also shows us that God will strengthen his servants for the task that he has called them to. So what can it mean for believers to have victory wherever they go? It means that God has already won the victory and he has promised to be with us and strengthen us for the work that he has called us to do in the context of the church and in the context of the world. Just as David defeated Israel's enemies, so today's believers can, with the help of the Holy Spirit, accomplish our God-given tasks as we seek to further God's kingdom by using the blessings that God has graciously given to us to be a blessing to others. This account of victories in 2 Samuel 8 should inspire confidence in believers knowing that we do not work in vain. God is at work fulfilling his word through his people. And those in Christ have victory because of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is sufficient for us. 
Help us to recognize that we have been blessed to be a blessing to others and give us the strength to live our lives to that end. Lord, help us to know that the biggest way we bless others is through the context of the local church. Help us to recognize that we serve a generous God who has graciously blessed us. And so let our response be one of thanksgiving, joyfully giving of our time and our resources. God, I pray that you would help us to live our lives in a way that makes you known. I pray that you would humble us, that you would help us to truly evaluate our hearts and our minds, recognizing sins in our lives and asking for forgiveness. Thank you, Father, for all that you are. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.